For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Here in chapter 11, the angel Gabriel explains the last vision that Daniel has received. It contains more than 130 prophecies that were fulfilled when Greece ruled the world. Of particular interest for us is the way one of those Greek generals typifies the Antichrist to come. Now let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, The King of the North. Fulfilled prophecy is one of uh, the greatest proofs that the Bible is truly inspired of God. Uh, There are about 2,500 direct specific prophecies in the Bible. 2,000 of them are already fulfilled. We are waiting on 500 prophecies that have to do with something called the Day of the Lord or Judgment Day, which Judgment Day really is a seven-year Uh, period, the Great Tribulation, it's sometimes called the Second Coming, you know all about that, and the kingdom called the Millennial Kingdom, a thousand-year reign on earth. So those 500 uh, prophecies uh, that remain are dealing with those things. I like what Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10 says, I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. Now, that's exactly what he's doing right here in Daniel chapter 11. Now, here in chapter 11, uh, if you remember, we are in the last of five visions that have occurred here in the book of Daniel. Uh, you'll, you'll remember, and I'll put up this uh, slide for you, the statue, because it's the overarching theme of the book is the... Un- uh, the um, the five successive kingdoms from Daniel's day until the end of human history when Christ appears, and uh, that was the dream and the vision. And actually, the, the rest of the four visions that come in the book are really detailed, uh, specific events that occur during that time, mostly during Greece. Greece's reign. And why that's important and why that is is because there is a ruler that is very much like the Antichrist of the future. And so there's a lot of detail given about this period in time with the wars and Israel and this uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, he's called. We're going to meet him again uh, tonight because uh, this is very important as it reflects on really the end of the world. And so you see the succession of world empires all the way down until the feet and the toes, which are an extension of the European region, and Christ comes in contact with that world government and then establishes his kingdom. And that's, of course, really what we've been talking about since uh, Daniel chapter 2, and especially now at the end. And so are you ready for tonight? Oh, do you know about Daniel 11? (laughs) Daniel 11 is famous for being the hardest chapter in the Bible to teach. Are you praying for me right now? (laughs) I hope so. Last night, I took one of my favorite preachers who, who took apart Daniel 11, and I hit play just to show my wife what I was up against. All right, and she, after she heard a few minutes, she was like, oh, dear Lord, <laughs> I will be praying for you. So it's really a Western civilization course, really a seminar packed into one chapter. There are 130 prophecies that we're going to look at uh, in 20 verses that are already fulfilled. And so really what you're doing is you can read along with a Western civilization textbook and these prophecies because it's really history. One, I heard one pastor say, um, you know, it wasn't much for history until I, I saw the spelling and realized it's his story. 
And really, that is really what we're seeing through the book of Daniel, that it's his story. And, and, and you know why Israel is front and center? Because he's working through Israel. And the only kingdoms and dynasties that we hear about are those that come in contact with Israel because God is saving the world through Israel. He's revealing himself and his promises, his plans, his gospel, his Messiah, all through this little tiny strip of land and the Jewish people. So whoever comes in contact with them through history is going to end up in the Bible. So there were other kingdoms and dynasties we don't hear anything about because they didn't come into his story so much. Not that they're insignificant, but they're not in the revelation because his story is about his saving work. And so we're going to take a look at uh, that tonight. Can I sum up the chapter in a few sentences? Sometimes it helps, and thank you for that slide. Sometimes it helps to know where we're going in a few sentences. The Greeks are going to become the new world power. As it stands where Daniel's at, it's Persia's ruling. All right? So the Greeks are going to take control. All right? Uh, They're going to divide the world into four regions. Two of those regions are going to be fighting back and forth. And Israel happens to be in the border, on the border of the north, the king of the north and the king of the south. So the king of the north and the king of the south, they're both Greek rulers. They're, they both want to outdo the other one, but Israel's in the way, right in the middle. So really, in one sentence, the entire chapter could be summed up as this. 150 years of tug of war between the king of the north, which is Syria, and the king of the south, which is Egypt, while Israel gets trampled on in the middle. All right? Verse 2. Now then, I tell you the truth, and Gabriel is speaking. The vision has come. Let me just back up just a quick second. Is, is that there's one vision to go. It's 10, 11, and 12. We've already been to 10, which is the introduction to the vision. Chapter 11 is the explanation of the vision. Now chapter 12 is a recap and the conclusion of the book of Daniel. All right, so we're right at chapter 11. Now he's going to explain the vision that has kind of freaked Daniel out a little bit. And so he's, uh, if he was freaked out before, he's going to be way freaked out by the end of the chapter. And so now then I tell you the truth, Gabriel's speaking to Daniel. Three more kings are going to appear in Persia. And then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. So let's just stop there. The Persian rule. So the Persian, from Daniel's time, he's talking to Gabriel. There's 200 years left. And so what Gabriel is saying, the Persian rules got four more kings to go before the Greeks come. All right, and so what he what he does is Persia. By the way, uh, let me show you a map. It was pretty ex- extensive rule. Okay, they ruled pretty much the the then known world, right? And uh, he says there will be four kings that will come. Now Persia are the modern day Iranians. So Iran was in control of the world for two hundred years. All right, so. Uh, uh, So that's what he says here. And so uh, he says, now, four kings are coming, and here they are. And you can just read it in in history. So Cambyses, uh, he's going to reign for these years. Uh, Guamata, he's an imposter. He's not a real, he shouldn't be on the throne, but of course he gets on the throne. Darius, not the Mede, the Persian. Those are the dates that he reigned. Now, this is the guy who wants to go after Athens and provoke Greece, this is where Greece is going to push back and win the day and and rule the world, right? So when he loses, his son Xerxes, who happens to be married to Esther, yeah, Esther marries this guy here. So you know what I was thinking? Why don't we do the book of Esther next after Daniel? All in favor, say aye. Aye. 
Oh, all right, let's go. I didn't hear a lot of too many women's voices in there. All right. So Xerxes is his son. So he's going to avenge dad, and he's going to lose even worse because when he's defeated, goodbye Persia, welcome Greece as the new uh, world empire. All right, three and four. Then a mighty king will appear, Alexander the Great, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he's appeared, briefly, his empire will be broken up and parceled out for the four winds of heaven. We've, we've been here before Daniel's explained this. It will not go to his descendants. Alexander the Great had two sons, one, one iffy, uh, but uh, his infant son was murdered. So he had nobody. Uh, to replace him, nor will it have the power he exercised the four kingdoms of, of Greek rule because his empire will be uprooted and given to others, four others uh, specifically. And so we, we take a look at that now. Now, uh, Greek, Greece is going to rule. We've already talked about Alexander uh, the Great. Uh, he, he led, he, uh, the Persians wanted to take Europe and Greece. So he pushed back, and eventually they took that whole map. They took it back, but Alexander was, was unbelievable. He did it in like eight years. He was in his 20s. He died um, very quickly at 32 years old. Alexander died. He died of a, some drunken bout. He got drunk, and then he was laying around. People just thought he was just sick from drinking too much. He got a fever, and then he died. The, then... The power went to four of his generals, and here's how the map looks. So Lucas, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Cassander. All right, now, for our story in chapter 11, it's all about Seleucus and the Seleucids who are following him and are the king of the north, and the king of the south. So the king of the south, really, uh, these are Greeks. So whenever I say Egypt and Syria, Syria will be the king of the north, and the Greeks, the, the Ptolemies, will be the king of the kings of the south, or Egypt, right? But they're not Egyptians, and they're not Syrians. They're Greeks who are in control of that area and fighting. All right, so you can keep that in mind. But the whole chapter is now going to be 150 years of the kings of the, the north fighting the kings of the south and Israel right in the middle. And one of these kings is going to be the twin brother, prophetically, of the king that is coming to rule the world, Mr. 666. He's a picture of him. And that's why, really, we want to get through this material and get to the end of the chapter because we're going to get a lot of hints about what this beast, he's called the beast, uh, really looks like and, and what he's going to be doing. Uh, so let's dive in. Five, verse five. The king of the south will become strong. So now we're going to just talk about those two areas north and south, Egypt and Syria. But one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. And after some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south, down there in Egypt, will go to the king of the north, up there in Syria, to make an alliance. Let's be friends. But she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. It doesn't work. <laughs> in those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the ones who supported her. All right, so now we're going to see how it begins. Uh, the king in the south uh, is strong, right? Let's go to this, the, that new map now that I have of the south and the north. See, these are the other two kings, Lysimachus and Cassander over here, right? Greek rule. But the only ones in this story is the king in the north, and the king of the south. So I, I think it'd be helpful just to, to leave it up here, just to help us imagine it, right? And so you've got um, the king of, he's introducing how this guy, 
uh, Seleucus got up here. He actually was a commander down here with the original Ptolemy. Now, uh, do I have the chart? The reason no one can understand chapter 11 <laughs> is because chapter 11 is about the king of the north, plural, and the king of the south, plural, because it's over 150 years and they keep changing every other verse. Every other church, there's a new guy on the throne, right? But the Bible doesn't go into all of that explanation. But the history texts just follow around so accurately so that Daniel is accused of being a fraud because people say there's no way he could know all of these details, right? And so what we're dealing with from verses 5 to down to 20 is 150 years of the king of the north and the king of the south fighting. And sometimes this guy wins, sometimes this guy wins. But we're, every verse here, verse 5, 7 through 9, 10 through 14, they're all different kings. And, and they all have similar names, you know? And, and so I'm going to try to tiptoe through this minefield without getting blown up. And, and how to do that is not to name them all and go through, through every little detail. But I think in your mind, as we're going through chapter 11 here, that you keep in mind that we're bouncing down through 150 years of different kings fighting back and forth. Go back to the picture of the king of the north and south. So that chart and these two, that's, that's what's happening right here for 150 years, and how it's affecting Jerusalem and God's people. All right? Does that help? That helps me a little bit, so that's good. So, so what the verses, you can go back to the verses. So what, what he's saying is Seleucus was one of Ptolemy's generals, but he became stronger. And so Seleucus founded Antioch, so Syria. So this king of the north is, uh, creates the foundation for what is called Antioch, Syria, uh, where the first missionary Christian church is in, in Acts uh, chapter 11. And he named it after his father, Antiochus, right? So he called it Antioch. And, and so uh, he's up there in the north. So the king of the north and the king of the south, they're fighting now. Now, what they want to do is have, an, have a, an alliance. And so the king of the south gives his daughter to marriage to the king of the north. The problem is, the king of the north is already married. So he divorces his wife, Laodicea. And she was very powerful, and very influential. And she didn't take well to being removed, right? So... Berenicea from south comes up to marry the king of the north and the ex-wife puts a hit out on her and their baby and the husband and all of them are taken out. So she puts her own son on the throne and he's the next king of the north. Happy family. <laughs> so that's why the text says, yeah, the alliance failed. So that's exactly what happened here. So the princess bride from the south uh, is handed over and her entourage, okay? And so the king of the north's power uh, really comes to an end there. Uh, so let's go on, seven through nine. So that's what happened there in that little exchange. One from her family line, Berenicea, down from the Egypt land, will arise to take her place. She will attack the forces of the king of the north. He's mad. He's going to take vengeance now. You killed my sister. And, and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. And so that's verse 9. So revenge southern style, all right? So Berenice's brother takes the throne in Egypt. He heads north to avenge his sister's death. He attacks Syria, plunders them, 
and returns home with the treasure. And for a while, they ignore each other, the king of the north and the king of the south. But just so you know, every single time that there's an exchange of fighting, every single time, they have to go through Israel. Every single time. Right, so they're fighting. So whoever's in control, the king of the north, that would be Syria, they occupy Israel. And Israel belongs to Syria. Right? And when the king of the south, when you're reading the king of the south one, they're under Egyptian occupation. All right? But every single time. These kings aren't until the end going after the Jews. They're going after each other and crushing Israel because Israel just happens to be in the way. And as it were, they're fighting over Israel and other territories. They want Lebanon. They want what is Syria and Jordan. They want those areas. And so they're not attacking those areas. They're attacking the other Greek army for control of it. All right? So I think uh, you've got that there. So verses 10 through 14. You got that part, right? Let's go on. Now his sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands. Sore loser. Yet he will not Yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first. And after several years, he will advance with the huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. This is 200 years before it's all going to happen. It hasn't happened yet for 200 years. And Gabriel is just telling Daniel all these little intricacies. Who's going to marry who? How they're going to die? Who's going to ascend to the throne? All of these details. That's incredible. That just, that just blows your human mind away. That God knows everything about everybody. Every path. I mean, you know what? You know, one time I was looking at the dust in a sunbeam and the particles were all dancing around and I was just thinking, he's got that under control as well. I mean, he, he's got every hair on every head numbered in the whole world. He's just amazing. I mean, he'd be good to go to for some counsel. Amen? <laughs> if you had a problem, you might want to talk to somebody like that. So we ended at verse 14. (laughs) All right. So let me sum up that paragraph because it doesn't make much sense uh, at first reading. It's a tug of war that just continues to go on between uh, the north and the south. So let's try to keep score with this paragraph. So Syria in the north and Egypt in the south, they amass large armies. Uh, The north wins. The uh, southern king goes berserk. A sore loser, and he, and he has a temporary gain um, by slaughtering everybody in sight, thousands of people, uh, but it fizzles out. Now, in verse 13, here comes the north again, and Syria wants uh, more and more territory. They want to get down into Egypt, right? And, uh, and it says in verse 13 that the rebellious Jews who are pro-Syria, right, they spark an uprising to throw off their Egyptian uh, controlled oppressors, but without uh, success. All right, we got that. That's easy, 15 through 19. Then the king of the north, now we are changing places again, will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south, Egypt, will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land, Israel. And he will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the the south, Egypt. 
And he will give him, here we go again, a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. So here, take my daughter. She's really nice. <laughs> you know, it was a setup, you know, to overthrow him. But his plans will not succeed or help him. And I'm going to tell you why. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands, Europe, and he will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Thankfully. Now, so verses 15 through 19 uh, is nice and easy because it's all one ruler. His name is Antiochus the Great, but they're all called Antiochus. It's not our little horn uh, prototype of the Antichrist yet. We're close to him, but we're still in the chain, and it's not him yet. It's, it's a relative of his, but uh, not yet. And so this Syrian leader, Antiochus the Great, he rips Israel out of Egypt's control and because uh, Egypt has been dominating there. Now, verses 15 and 16, Syria in the north and Egypt in the south are really duking it out now. It's so interesting. Where do you think they're building those siege ramps? They're building them in Israel or in Lebanon. I mean, they're fighting right there at the border, and, they're, and, and they are fighting uh, in fortified cities in Israel. Uh, so the king of the north, uh, Syria, is going to win this round. He ousts Egypt out. So now Syria is in control. The king of the north now uh, claims the beautiful land, and the Bible wants you to know Israel is vulnerable now to this Syrian king. All right, so... The angel refers to Israel four times as the pleasant, glorious land or the beautiful land. Uh, the word in Hebrew is sevi, and it means honorable or a place of prominence or glorious or beautiful. Now, God took, why is it called that? Why is that the, the place that God says the beautiful land, right? It's not always that beautiful, actually. There's a lot of wilderness, but it, it is beautiful. I have a picture of it. I have a, it's beautiful. I mean, God has made that place beautiful. You could leave that on there. Why is it beautiful? Why is it glorious? Because God took an ordinary guy from Mesopotamia, which is like in the middle of Iraq, and he said, listen, I want you to go over here. I'm going to show you where to go. Take your wife who can't have kids, and I want you to travel all the way 500 miles to a place called Canaan. I've given them 400 years. They won't repent. I, 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 I'm going to give them, uh, I'm going to give them, I should say, 400 more years. And then I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to pour into to this land and this people the promises. Genesis 12 says that, that through this ordinary man will come descendants that, that will outnumber the stars in the sky. And through them, the Christ, the Savior of the world, the blessing for all people, for whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, who came from a Jewish woman, from, from Abraham's biological genetics. That's why it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place because the Lord of that land, the Lord of those people, is beautiful and glorious. And so this king sets himself up in the beautiful land. Uh, Antiochus the Great, he wants Egypt too, not just uh, the glorious land. And, and so in verse 17, he gives a daughter to marry a, a Ptolemy, which is an Egyptian ruler there, uh, for the purpose to overthrow him. But alas, the history books tell us that instead of overthrowing, she fell in love with the Egyptian ruler, and, and she loved her husband, and she loved the uh, Egyptian rulers. And so it didn't work. And so uh, that was probably really frustrating for the guy. But uh, how? I, so, so he couldn't get, he got them out of Israel, the Egyptians, the king of the north. But he can't get to Egypt. So he says, what about the coastlands? 
I'm going to go to Greece. I'm going to go to coastlands. There in Hebrew is islands. So the islands in the Aegean Sea, which now part of them are Turkey and part of them are Greece. So he wants Europe and he's heading in that direction, uh, but it's not going to happen. In spite of his success, he gets a few of the islands. A commander puts Mr. Arrogant in his place, verse 18. And, and Rome now is pushing back. So the textbooks next to this chapter is saying he went to the coastlands and Rome said, oh no, Rome is years, just a few years away now from being top dog of the world. So this is how Rome starts to come into the picture because this dude, king of the north, is pushing. He wants more of Europe, and Rome says no. So this is where it starts to happen. So he's forced to retreat there in verse 19 uh, back to Syria, and that's the last we hear of him. Now, continuing, we've got one guy to talk about before the Antichrist prototype. All right, verse 20, just isolated out. Um, his successor, now, the king of the north, who just got pushed back from Rome, he's out of the picture now. Now we've got his successor. He's famous for sending out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he'll, he's destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. So what's that all about? Well, how sad to have your epitaph uh, be that you are just famous for oppressing people and, and raising taxes and robbing the temple treasuries, which the textbooks say uh, that he did. And one day he just falls over dead. That's what it means there. There's, there's, there's some sort of mystery in it, what happened. Well, here's what the rumor says, and here's what the, the secular textbooks say. His brother poisoned and took the throne. He's not a rightful heir. And guess who he turns out to be? Antiochus Epiphanes, the prototype of the Antichrist of the last days. And so we're going to move now from 21 to 27. Now we're talking about somebody we've already met in Daniel, and he's called the little horn with the big blasphemous mouth. And the Antichrist at the end in our future Right? Not our personal future, praise the Lord. <laughs> but in the world's future is also called the little horn. All right, so we're going to take a look at these verses. This is about the actual guy, Epiphanes. We're, we're making good time. We're almost, we're getting there. We're almost. <laughs> Did you hear that? I stopped short. We're almost halfway. <laughs> he will be succeeded by a, here we go. This is the little horn with the big mouth. This is it. King James has it better. Vile. He will be succeeded by vile person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He's an imposter. He's not an heir to that throne. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure. He loves surprises. And he will seize it through intrigue. The word is deception. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. Boy, that word is big with Antichrist wannabes. And with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers or his uh, forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. Everybody's a friend of a guy who gives gifts, by the way. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he'll stir up his strength and courage against the king in the south, Egypt. The king in the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king of the north's provisions will try to destroy him, poison. His armies will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, 
will sit at the same table and lie to each other. So the, we got the king in the south sitting at a negotiating table, breaking bread with the king of the south, uh, lying to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. Oh, that's good stuff. So the little horn, now the king with the big ego, ego and a hey in the ego. It's kind of like an igloo, and when you're really proud and you build an igloo, it's called an igoo. All right. I should have just left the ego alone right there. The big ego and a hate for God and his people arise. Now, you remember the, uh, the picture of the little horn with the big mouth, right? So in, in Daniel's vision uh, uh, and in revelation of the end time antichrist, he comes out of te- horns are always kings or countries or kingdoms. All right, so this king comes out of a 10-nation coalition that's related to this Roman (coughs) European beast, right? So the end-time guy. Uh, This guy, Epiphanes, comes out of a kingdom of four, which was from Seleucus, right? And those guys, uh, the king of the south and the king of the north. So that's a nice portrait of him to be thinking about while we're talking about him. All right, so now, um, first of all, let's just sum this up. We can go back to, yeah, thank you for that. Verses 28 and 29, uh, he steals treasures and he makes himself rich. This is the guy, Epiphanes. Uh, In verse 29, his heart is raging against the Jews because all good antichrists hate the Jews. Uh, And verse 30 and following, he attacks the south, so Egypt, uh, going through Israel, of course, and now uh, uh, ships come from Cyprus uh, and Rome shows up and stops him. But here's what he does. He gets upset. Rome comes in to help Egypt and he, and he loses heart and he knows he can't, can't win. And so what he's going to do is destroy Jerusalem. Now, this is what he does. And it amounts to something called the abomination that causes desolation, right? And so here, the, the temple worship is halted there. The sacrifices uh, of swine on the altar and a statue of Zeus he puts on the altar. And uh, he kills 80,000 Jews. He enslaves 40,000 of them. He sells, uh, he puts 40,000 in prison and he steals about what would uh, be in today's uh, money, a billion dollars from the treasuries of the palaces there and the temple in uh, Jerusalem. So verse 31, this event is called the abomination of desolation. Abomination means the horrible thing of desolation that brings destruction. And, and what that was was the statue of Zeus, the, the, the closing the temple down, right? And all offering swine and human beings on the altar. This event was called the abomination of desolation because the end comes there swiftly for him as well. Uh, now, Jesus will take that phrase, abomination and desolation, and he will point to the future. He will say it's going to happen in the future. So something the Antichrist is going to do that is very similar to what Epiphanes did. And here's what it is. Instead of putting, him, putting a, a, a statue of Zeus on the altar, he's going to walk in and put himself on the altar, and he's going to say that he is God. And he puts a statue, Revelation 13, he puts a statue of himself in this temple that's going to be a, like a little wing of the temple there on the dome, there, not the dome, the temple mount. It's going to be a little makeshift little wing where their Jews, after the church is gone, the Jews are going to, through some kind of peace treaty, be able to start sacrificing again up on that um, mount, right? And so he's going to go in there, proclaim himself God, 
And the statue is going to speak. And he's going to force the world to worship him and that statue. And whoever does not, whoever refuses that mark, whatever that is, 666, cannot buy, cannot sell, and will be beheaded. And the, and the reason the world will worship him is because in Revelation 13, he takes a bullet to the head and is killed. And then the dragon, Satan himself, breathes life into him and he comes back in a mock resurrection like Jesus Christ. And the world says, who's like that? And they worship him. Now, Jesus in Matthew 24 says, that is the abomination of desolation. It's not a statue of Zeus or a pig on the altar. It's this man saying, I am God. Apart from me, there's nobody else. Now, this is interesting. 36 to the end, and we're done. All commentators and scholars say this. While there were things about what we just read that are commonalities between epiphanies and the beast to come, right? Um, the verses now to the end, uh, you can't fulfill them in epiphanies. They can only be talking about the latter beast. So this last bit is very interesting because we are talking about the world ruler to come who will, Jesus will fight with the breath of his mouth and destroy him. Let's read it and we'll be finishing up. Verse 36, now this king will do as he pleases. He'll exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. That's how we know we're not in Epiphany's day anymore. The time of wrath is the great tribulation, the day of the Lord. Oh, there's more reasons. For what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers that can also be translated the God of his fathers. We'll talk about that. Or for the one desired by women, or it can be translated, or for the desire for women. We'll talk about that. Nor will he regard any God, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign God and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out. Whoa! I thought he was the king of the north. You see, this is a different king. We fast-forwarded to the end of the world. Now we're talking about the kings of the north and south again, but they're of a different time. At the time of the end... The king of the south will engage him in battle. That's still going to be Egypt and the Muslim world. And the king of the north, well, that's going to change a little bit, will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. Almost finished. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall. But Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. I'll explain that. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt, the Libyans, and the Sudanese in submission. But reports from the east and, of, and the north will alarm him. He will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas, the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, at the beautiful holy mountain within reach of Jerusalem. He will, yet he will come to his end and no one 
will help him. Poor little antichrist. No one's going to help him. So, okay, let's talk about Mr. 666, all right? Mr. President of the world, who arises from a 10 federation of nations of European uh, region. He knocks three of them out, and he becomes the world prominent leader, mostly by deception and intrigue. He arises out of nowhere. He's the little horn. He just pops up out of nowhere, and he's going to be the one. After the church is gone, as uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 says, the Antichrist cannot be revealed until the one who restrains is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed. And so in keeping with Matthew 24, on an ordinary day, business as usual, people getting married, they're going out to dinner, they're, they're, uh, they're working in a field, two people will be in a field, one will go, one will stay. Two people will be in a bed, a believer and an unbelieving spouse. One goes, one stays. Two women working in the kitchen, one goes, one taken, and one stays behind. Why? Because the great tribulation is coming and we are not appointed to wrath but to receive salvation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. Revelation 3 and verse 10 says to the church, Jesus speaking, I will spare you from the hour that will come upon the whole world, the tribulation that will test the entire earth. I will spare you and keep you from it. So when we, the church, have been removed, there's going to be some wars, there's going to be some set resettling, and then he's going to appear with all the answers. And that great tribulation starts ticking when he signs with Israel that brings peace to the Middle East with Israel. That's when the seven years starts. All right? And so let's look through the paragraph and see what we can find out about him. Number one. He's got that spellbinding supernatural thing. And we already heard about that uh, in the Bible. Uh, his false prophet, he has a religious sidekick that is going to call down fire from heaven, among other things. He's going to help the statue to speak. So this false prophet, whoever it is, uh, is going to help bring the deception level to an all-time high. That's in Revelation chapter 13. Um, and, and so he's got this spellbinding thing. He's arrogantly, uh, verse 36, exalting himself. He's a strong atheist that rejects all religions except the one that he establishes, and it will be him uh, later on in the tribulation. Uh, no, the next thing I want to see here, verse 37, is he Jewish? He, ha he shows no regard for the Elohim. It's plural but it's used of Jehovah, God, because God is three in one. So when you read about the name of God in the Old Testament, it's not singular. It's Elohim, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Jews have a hard time explaining that, by the way, because it says the Lord, our God, Elohim, the gods, is one. The gods is one. That's what their prayer is. Every morning they wake up and say, the gods is one, right? Well, it, because the gods is one. <laughs> Father, <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, in the name, not names, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he, this Antichrist, doesn't regard either the gods of his father. I think King James has it right. I'm going to go with the God of his father that this guy has some kind of Jewish connection. It makes total sense to me. That's just my opinion. You don't have to believe it to be safe. <laughs> now, the next thing that's very uh, intriguing in verse 37, it says, nor will he have a regard for the desire of, uh, of women or the desire for women, I should say. Or is it this thing, one desired by women? It can go either way. So some commentators say he won't have a regard for the Messiah. 
because you know when it, when it says in, I think it's Haggai, chapter two, verse seven, it says that the Lord is the desired of the nations. So desired of women would be Hebrew women who want to desire to be the mother of the Messiah. So he has no, in short, it's an idiom for Jesus the Messiah. He has no regard. I don't think so. I think it's saying quite clearly, he's a little odd this way. He does not desire women. He will not be deterred by any sexual passion for women. And in this day and age, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what it means. Moving on. Now, instead, his God, in verse 38, is the God of power, money, and nuclear weapons. Verse 39, he progressively takes over the world by bribery and flattery and deception. And then I love this, with the help of a strange God. What does the New Testament say about the God of this world? How else is he going to get his help? It already tells us Revelation 13, the dragon gives him his power. How else is everybody falling for this? He's not just a smooth talker. A smooth talker can only go so far. But a smooth talker who's got the breath and the influence of the evil one himself, he possesses the man. He is not demon-possessed. He's possessed by the devil himself is speaking through this man. So with a little help of lowercase God, a strange God indeed, but the God of this world. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, calling him the God of this world. And so uh, verses 40 to 45 is the final conflict, Armageddon. Uh, at first, in the beginning of the tribulation, uh, not everyone bows down. And so you've got the king of the north, which Bible scholars will say, it's probably Russia leading a confederacy of nations catches his attention. Hey, they're coming down. And also you've got the southern kingdom, which would be Egypt and the Arab uh, allies coming up. And so scholars say that it's during this time that the wars of Ezekiel 38 and 39 are happening. And now by verse 44, we're at the end of the tribulation. The trumpets are blowing. The bowls are being poured down. The earth is just rocking uh, back and forth. And he gets news. You know, Revelation chapter 9 says that uh, he's going to get news that 200 million, 200 million troops are coming to gather around where he's at. And he's in Israel. 200 million, first of all, China can do that today. But scholars say it's going to be more than China. It's China plus all the surrounding nations that aren't too hip with everything going on in Israel. Uh, and so uh, they start making their way. Uh, Armageddon, of course, is uh, named in Revelation chapter 16 and, and verse uh, 16. And that's where everybody's going to gather uh, Jesus talks about it uh, in, in Matthew 24, and, and he encamps there uh, between the two seas in, in, in kind of uh, reach of Jerusalem, perfect Armageddon. You know, uh, Israel's not very big. It's the size of New Jersey. You guys don't know what New Jersey means, right? Because you all live out here, but... Uh, it's not very big. And uh, so that's where it takes, uh, takes place. By the way, the 200 million, it's the 200 million and the four angels that release all of that and stir that up is, is really the sixth trumpet. There's a seventh trumpet and seven more bull judgments to go. But when that trumpet is blown, the 200 million that come are given power to kill a third of the survivors. Already a fourth are, have already gone. A fourth of the world is gone. When the 200 million come, that gets his ear. Another one third of the leftovers are taken out by just that one 
trumpet. And there's more to come. Let me read how it all ends. Let's read it together. I'll read it to you. Here's how it ends. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dripped, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. The church is there with him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, quoting from the Old Testament. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. This banner here where you keep your weapons. He has a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and a flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast, that's our man, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. That is not going to work very well. But the beast, the Antichrist, was captured. And with him, his sidekick buddy, Mr. Call Down Fire from Heaven, false prophet, who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast, and worshiped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And the angels are singing hallelujah (laughs) to all of this. And, And those who were martyred, Those who were martyred, millions of people, will be singing hallelujah and also coming with him. Surprise. Those are faces people thought we'd never see them again. But uh, they are, well, you know, here are a couple takeaways that I, I wrote down. You know, first of all, God's word has proven itself uh, to be trustworthy. Therefore, when there's a promise in there, I can rely on it. The second thing I wrote down was God knows the future. He sees it all before it comes to pass. And he's ordained my footsteps before any one uh, of them has come to pass. And so he's, he's good to go to. He knows the path that I take. What a friend. What a friend we have, the all-knowing God who loves us and is on our side. Take advantage of that. The other thing I wrote down is God's sovereign plan will come to pass. His his plan cannot be thwarted by man. He's trustworthy, and it's good to take refuge in him. Those who trust in him will share in his victory and have nothing to fear. And the last thing I wrote down is God's coming to judge the world. It's going to be terrible. But God promises that everyone who comes to Jesus will escape the coming wrath. So if you don't know him tonight, it might be a good idea and a good time to call upon him now. Because if you do, you'll have nothing to fear. You'll be with him. It's like getting inside the ark before the rains come. It's like, it's like Lot and his family who the angel said to to them, listen, I can't do a thing here until you're safe. And as they went up and they were safe, the mountains, it's a picture, the church going up and being tucked away. Listen, I can't do a thing until you're up and away and safe. And then what? Judgment came down there in those cities. So call on the name of the Lord. 
And if you already know him, spread the word. Time is short. We want to fill the lifeboats. Amen? Look at you. You had a whole course in Western civilization tonight. You know, we're going to be passing out diplomas in the back. (laughs) Praise the Lord. That wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. The Lord might have been true to his word to help us. Imagine that. (laughs) Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for helping us get through all of those verses and all of those kings of the north and kings of the south. And thank you for the lesson that we see, Lord. You are great and mighty. We are not afraid. We are courageous and confident in the Lord our God. And we will live for you and we will shine for you and we will hold out the word of life amidst a crooked and perverse generation in which we shine like stars in the universe, as Philippians chapter 2 put it. We thank you, God, the awesome privilege of knowing you, that we're not appointed to suffer wrath, to be rescued. We look forward to that day, Lord. Let us be about our Father's business, the day that the last trumpet sounds, and we who are alive and remain at your coming shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. We look forward to that great and awesome day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand close with a last song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.